Yeah, and I think that's important, too. I, I've said for many years, and we've talked about it, I, in my opinion, the guys at the top, the only thing they actually fear is, one, being Sri Lanka and or Muammar gaddafi by us, and two, is another one of their guys taking them out, right? So it's like a, a general mm-hmm. taking out a general. Uh, and we see that in the case of, let's say, in politics, like a Rod Blagojevich going to prison. Why that happened? That guy obviously pissed off somebody who was a step above him that said, oh, really? You've got big balls? Well, I mean, this is what we do to all the dictators that we've installed over the years, from Saddam Hussein to Noriega and others. We install them, and then as soon as they step out of line or they get big balls and think they're so important and powerful, we go, all right, take him out, show him <laughs> he's not really the boss, and put a new guy in. And so they I think you're they right. They thought they were in the club. They're not in the club. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I do agree with that because the way I see the structure in simple terms is you have like the 0.01%. That would be up there with the, the Rockefeller levels. And then you've got the 0.99% that are really all the people we see that we perceive in positions of power, these oligarchs, these CEOs, the politicians. And then you have the lower 99% that's just all of us that really are the worker yeah. bees. The other thing is, I've said before, too, this is where I think a lot of the technology possibly might not work, is if these guys made a mistake, and let's just pretend the jab was poison or it gives people chemo brain or whatever the hell it was. If they went and they infected and hurt a bunch of the worker bees, and you have a bunch of incompetent buffoons running around, which there was a lot of incompetent people before COVID land. Well, all of a sudden, if, if you just... You know, screwed up your scientists, your engineers, your programmers, your technologists, and all the people that have actually been building the technology for you. You just lost your workforce. Like that, that would be the equivalent of back, you know, if you believe the story of, you know, the pharaohs building the pyramids and they're using all these slaves. And then you go, okay, let's poison all the slaves. And they're not done building the pyramid yet. And now all of a sudden you got a bunch of sick slaves that can't finish building your pyramid. Now what do you do? So, I, I mean, I've thought about that, too. I'm like, they may have made mistakes. They may have jumped the gun, and now they find themselves um, in a position where they don't necessarily have the workforce to continue building it out as fast as they wanted to get it done. Right. So, All right, so. we'll see how much the backpedaling is real um, and what their plan B is. We'll find out. Uh, this is more of the same. Just keep keep scrolling. Okay. All right, folks, we're back to the document here. Yeah, we're going to finish this document. We're doing it. Today is the day. This large, was 115. We've largely covered it. Yeah, it's 115 the, pages. We, we've largely covered it. So we're at oh, 80, scroll back up. That's an interesting chart. Scroll back up. Oh, uh, this the one or chart. above it? No, nah, oh, above this it. one. Yeah, what year does that one on the left go to? That is, uh, let's take a look. Hold on. We'll zoom in on here. That's 1800. Evolution of energy systems in absolute and relative terms. Scroll back, zoom back into the chart on the left so I can read the whole thing. Let's take a look. So it's got terawatt hours. Okay. Keep scrolling to the right. So Okay. So it's got uh, other renewables, solar, wind, nuclear, hydro, natural gas, crude oil. Uh, coal and then traditional biofuels and it goes back to 1800 um well out of the terawatt hours as of 2017 i don't know dustin what 90 percent of that is natural gas coal and crude crude oil 
Yes, definitely. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is just I don't, tradition. I don't even know why they labeled solar. You can't even see the line. I know. And then what is down at the bottom? Traditional biofuels, coal, crude, natural gas. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. basically nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, okay. Yeah. Keep going. All right. We're going to keep going down this document. Now, Jim, one of the cool things I think you should put on your resume now is that I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure you are the only person in the world who has actually read this document. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out, other than people like yourself that are making investments, who actually reads these things. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I seriously, know. like, is it just a pencil pusher guy they turn this over to? I don't know. Or is this just like writing a really long business plan so when you hand it to someone that's going to be one of your henchmen, they just get it in the binder and they go, okay, this must be real. All right, thanks. We'll make sure we do that. We'll put up the smart yeah. polls, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I think we're the document we, is done. Wow, we went through this whole thing. Yeah. Oh, are these all the, uh, oh, here's the authors. This is. I always find this to be interesting, though. These are the guys they credit to this. Patrick uh -huh. Bolton, Columbia University, <laughs> Morgan Despries, Bank, Bank of France, Luis Auza Piera da Silva, Bank for International Settlements, mm -hmm. Friedrich Samana, Amundi. He's in responsible investing. And another Remains guy from Bank, Bank of France. Yeah, that's it. They credit this whole paper to only five people. Come on. Yeah. All right. What yeah, do you want five to uh, people with a staff of a thousand? Let's see. What do you want to look at now? Go back to the folder and just pick a document. I don't care. Oh, just pick, we're going to do uh, musical documents. That's what I need to have is a, a song that comes on here. Well, I sent you what five tranches. So, oh my God. Let's, yeah. Let's, we got to get through this first tranche. All right, hold on. I'm going through here to figure out where we were. All right, so now we've got... I'll read off some of these to you. Actually, here, we'll pull this up on the screen. Look, just pick one. I don't care. Uh, let's see. We've got um, BIS, uh, Project Enbridge. Did we go over that? I've talked about it. I think you here. read I think you read that, and I read it independently, so... Yeah. Um, BlackRock going go over the blue. Go, to, go over the Blue Carbon Coalition. Blue Carbon Coalition. All right, yeah. we'll do that. Let's pull that one up. All right. Let's take a look at this one. Oh, this is only two blue, pages. So. Yeah, the Blue Carbon Coalition. Gathering governments, non-governmental actors, and private actors, which means NGOs and corporations. The Blue Carbon Coalition aims to accelerate investments in coastal carbon sinks. New term they made up. Coastal, Coastal carbon sinks. Yeah. <laughs> Coastal wetlands, mangroves, salt marshes, and seagrasses have an outsized role to play in mitigating and adapting to climate change. When protected or restored, these ecosystems sequester and store globally significant amounts of carbon in the plants and soils beneath them, known as blue carbon. Now, let's just pause right there for a second. Yeah, that's how they're going to hijack all that stuff. 
So if anybody has any vaguely familiarity with what happened to, uh, you know, the Everglades down in Florida and the destruction of that, do you, do you have any recollection, recollection of what happened? I remember following that years ago, but what exactly did they do? Did that have to do with farming or no? It did. It's all the chemicals, agrochemicals runoff caused the damage of the Everglades. So the big corporations that pushed all the big farm chemicals and caused the damage to the Everglades are now telling us we have to save them. Yeah. And that, uh, that, that, that all tie sink. into that red tide and everything? That was all part of it, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Continue. We destroyed it. Now we must save it by giving it to us. I can't yeah, read it. Yeah, make it bigger. There we go. The Glasgow COP26 marked an inflection point in the recognition of blue carbon as an essential nature-based solution to climate change. The goal is to develop conservation models that benefit the livelihoods worldwide with a focus on least developed countries, indigenous peoples, and local communities, <laughs> i.e. we have to, you know, develop the South. Southern we have hemisphere. to industrialize but, the primitive folks. I, that's what I keep telling yeah. the audience. You're going to sit here and tell me that some guy, you're supposed to believe some guy running around in a loincloth that hunts elk with a wooden spear is a polluter. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's not necessary. It's not yet. What they're going to do is they're going to develop the Southern hemisphere. And then when the same problems we've seen, like with the Everglades, I just mentioned, then they're going to point the finger at the local communities in the Southern hemisphere saying it's your fault. Exactly. No, that's what it is. And then the solution to that is yeah. carbon, Carbon credit-based central bank digital currency. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. It's, uh, I don't know. Pick another document down there. Carbon pricing leadership something. It's a carbon pricing leadership coalition. One planet summit. And there's the I carbon pricing leadership report. The report might be too big. Let's, this one's two pages. We'll go through this one. All right. Let's look at this. This is the uh, leadership coalition. Yep. So there's, they, they want to implement an ambitious pricing for carbon to enhance global understanding of carbon pricing as a tool for accelerating and financing effective climate action. Its purpose is to promote carbon pricing as an effective tool to reduce emissions so that 50% of the global emissions are covered by carbon pricing by 2030. <laughs> Strengthening carbon pricing policies to redirect investment commensurate with the scale of the climate change. <laughs> that's no different than a tax folks in 2018 yeah. carbon pricing in the americas platform was created since then three countries namely argentina chile and colombia have implemented carbon pricing and canada and mexico are currently implementing carbon markets quebec and chile co-chairs of the cpa which is the carbon pricing of the in the americas platform invited governments across the americas to endorse the glasgow d, d declaration on carbon pricing in the americas so they want carbon pricing, but they got to sell it first. <laughs> Unbelievable, man. It's crazy. All right, let's take a look. Um, carbon pricing leadership report, carbon budget infograph final. Yeah, carbon, do that one. Do the graph. 
the graph. All right, let's take a look at this. Oh yeah, this this is this is good. All right, it's called balancing the budget. Oil and gas companies cannot be considered Paris compliant if they are prepared to sanction projects that would take the world past the limits. Okay. Scroll right. down. I highlighted something on here. I know I did. Nope. No highlights. No. All right. So basically what they've got is it's got this really cool graphic thing. I can't see the top. Oh, you want, uh, hold on. I was yeah. trying to get down to the so bottom. So basically what they're saying is oil and gas companies are non-Paris compliant where they spend money uh, drilling for for new oil and gas exploration and production. Okay? Mm -hmm. And the ones that are compliant will not will not be drilling, you know, past a certain uh, year, 2030. Right. But they want blue hydrogen, which comes from natural gas, so this makes no sense. <laughs> Well, what's the, and let me ask you, what's the purpose of that? Is that to drive small drillers out of the business, or are there no more small drillers anyway? I don't know the business. Oh no, no, this is this is all just to get the carbon carbon credits, and you know we got to end fossil fuels. We got to end fossil fuels. That's all this is. Funded by the guys that own the fossil fuels, right? <laughs> uh, Which, by the way. I did find reading the Rockefeller book. Remember they made that announcement, I don't know, five or six years ago that the Rockefeller family was going to divest from their oil and gas investments, meaning Exxon and Chevron, their two biggest holdings. Yeah. Remember that? There was yes. a whole like press thing about it. It was all over CNBC. Well, they didn't do it. They didn't <laughs> do it because they felt like they needed to keep board seats to affect the change from within. So they kept it. And it was only coming from one small family fund, and they've got like 10 of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was just like the uh, article that you reviewed from the Texas legislature with uh, BlackRock and Vanguard and stuff, where they talked yeah. about like, oh, well, we can't divest from these terrible fossil fuel companies because this is how we're able to affect change by having board seats inside yeah. these companies yeah all right let's take a look uh carbon place is a global carbon credit transaction network that will enable the simplest oh, just go in order so we, we you can remember which ones we've covered all right well let's look at this one all right this one's good Carbon Place's unique blockchain-enabled ledger, distributed ledger technology will fundamentally change how carbon credits are bought and sold. Hold on one second. For some reason, <clears throat> some of these won't let you... It won't let me... Uh, here, I'll read the rest. Do you want me to read it? <clears throat> no, you can it's read it. I can't see it. Yeah, it says uh, voluntary carbon market to scale and accelerate global climate action. Backed by banks with a global client base, Carbon Place will connect the markets, registries, and exchanges of the voluntary carbon market directly to millions of customers in different geographic markets. And then there's a chart here or a map. The map, a map of the world, different colors yeah uh let's see here and then you've got this highlighted 
where the emerging world of carbon markets meets the established world of banking. And they have, it's a settlement technology, it's a distribution network, it's a wallet. And these wallet things are popping up all over the place now. I've seen them at, at, uh, about banks. I've seen like the Apple wallet. I've seen it in stores. The wallet is becoming uh, a common phrase getting into the public. So beware of that. There was just something else. I don't know if it was an article. I know we didn't cover it with you because it had been between the last time you were on. It had to do with another wallet that was being launched. Oh, was it a partnership coming out of Zelle that had to do with a digital wallet? It was, again, all the big banks coming together to develop a digital wallet. Yeah, yeah. All right. So um, the question is, because you said this one might be too big, the Carbon Pricing Leadership Report. Well, let me just pull it up. Yeah, let's pull it up. Yeah, pull it up real quick. Yeah, that's actually 49 pages. We could probably blast through. through it. If you're going to go at the pace yeah. that you've been going. All right, yeah, we, so can, we car- can blast through this one. Uh, hold on. Let me zoom in on this. Ooh, they've got a pretty little uh, 1970s looking cover here. Carbon Pricing Leadership Report 2021-2022. Oh, this is the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition. Glad to know they exist, folks. <laughs> you want me to just oh, scroll, scroll down through up. here? Go back up here on the uh, right there. Uh, I can't see the bottom half. Of oh, that I see. Is this highlighted? Yeah. Okay. With less than a decade to go before the Paris Agreement's 2030 deadline, collaboration and knowledge sharing is more important now than ever before. Ooh, yes, it is. Hurry up, uh, folks. You're not going fast enough. Mary Pangastu. Okay, here we go. The good news is we already have many of the tools to facilitate a transformative shift towards net zero future, pricing carbon chief among them. And while coverage coverage and price levels are still too low, less than 4% of the global emissions are currently covered by a carbon price within the range needed by 2030 to meet the Paris Agreement temperature goals. There are clear positive signs so only four percent of these emissions are covered by carbon credits at the moment or carbon taxes and prices whatever Mm -hmm. the world bank group is uniquely poised to support clients to prepare plan build capacity and implement carbon pricing policies now why would the world bank be involved in creating a carbon pricing policy for new hampshire (laughs) right yeah it's 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 crazy man oh hey listen and then the other thing is when you're coming across this and i see i don't watch the news i haven't watched television news in years what is the current um what's the current propaganda narrative to the general public if all this stuff doesn't happen, are they still saying like the the, the New York City is going to end up underwater? People oh, are just going to burn to death. I mean, do they even try to push it forward, or is this just happening? They don't care anymore what people think. I have no idea. I don't watch the media at all. Yeah, I'm just trying. I'm wondering what the front facing propaganda is at this point. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like if you said, listen, we need to get all this done by 2030. Otherwise, everyone's going to fry up in a solar flare. Then uh, people will go, oh, okay, do whatever you're going to do. But 
I just don't even know if they push that on TV anymore or they just keep moving forward with this at this point. Don't know. At least uh, this is Justin Trudeau here. Yeah. Just saying commitments alone are not enough. It must be backed up by policies and actions. In other words, they're saying actions speak louder than words. At the same time, they're saying do as we say, not as we do. They say actions speak louder than words, and then they have a whole lot of words in these documents. (laughs) Yes. Um, He's calling on governments and businesses to make new carbon pricing commitments. For those already pitching or pricing pollution, it could be a commitment for higher to higher prices, expanded coverage, and technical support for emerging systems. And I can't read the comment. It says this tax doesn't appear to be a large percentage of goods and services. Banksters do not need to be greedy when they are taxing the entire global gross domestic product. And it can be a small percentage. All right. You want uh, this one, Juan Carlos Jobet. Are we reading this one or no? Scroll down. Uh... This one. Um... Nah, it's fine. Nah, don't basically, worry about it. Basically, this entire document is saying, hey, we need carbon pricing globally. Right. That's what this entire document is talking about. Yeah. And when you say carbon pricing, Jim, you mean putting a penalty, a tax uh, on the carbon, and then that ties into what would be the carbon credit system? Right, because it gives the value to the carbon credits. Right. Right. So the way way this works... Which they're giving to themselves. Yeah. So wait, so just explain this in simple terms. So what they're doing is they're assigning a value to the release of, let's say, one ton of carbon, right? Like, let's say, uh, so they say whatever. One ton of carbon released is a penalty of whatever, $5,000, right? And then they're creating all these credits that you as a polluter can buy from essentially bis right if you back it all the way up um you're going to end up buying a carbon credit so if you run a mom and pop uh i don't know pizza shop and they deem you to be um exporting uh i don't know 10 tons of carbon into the atmosphere every year from your pizza ovens they can literally turn around and say you have to buy 10 credits from us at $5,000 a piece for $50,000. And then you're allowed to push that carbon into the atmosphere. I mean, is that, I mean, in simple terms, that's what they're doing. Yeah. They're basically, these, these companies are not going to be putting more, less CO2 into the atmosphere in general on a global scale. Okay. They're just going to be forced to buy carbon credits from the elite banks. Right, so either so they got, one... They have to have this carbon pricing system to know what they're worth. Right, so then what's going to happen at that level is either one, the business is not going to emit any carbon because they're going to go out of business. Uh, two, the price of your pizza is going to double because these guys have to make up the difference somewhere. Uh, or well, three... Two is big. 
Yeah. Two is big. Carbon pricing is to basically price human beings, social engineer the population into buying the things, spending money on the things they want you to spend money on. Right. Which is not a hamburger. Yes. Right. Unless so they're going to drive. Yeah. So they're going to drive up the prices. If the yeah. if the small mom and pops have to play into this, they're going to most likely be driven out of business because they're just not going to be able to afford it. I mean, even like you said, they're going to end up having to end up. What was I joking around with? Like carbon books, just to be able to track this stuff and make your reports to the government or whatever agency is going to oversee it. So you're going to have to track it. Then you're going to have to have the cost of buying the credits. And then, uh, and like you said, you're going to have to build that into the cost of what you're selling to the consumer. So you might go out of business anyway. Yep. Meanwhile, all these other guys, so if all of a sudden Elon Musk goes and he buys up all the independent mom and pop pizza shops in the United States, he could get away with it because he can offset it with all of his carbon credits that he gets on behalf of Tesla. Bingo. How is yeah. ExxonMobil going to be net zero? They're going to still have oil and gas wells. They're still going to drill new oil and gas wells, but they're going to create a whole shit ton of blue hydrogen and capture a bunch of CO2 for the carbon credits to, to net off the carbon supposedly they put into the atmosphere with the oil and gas wells. Yeah. It's a scheme. It's just a scheme. Yeah, and then the thing is what people, it's not just with this, it's with everything. Like Just like we talk about the big industry over the years writing all of the uh, laws and regulations that get passed down through right. their lobbyists to Congress to pass. And you go, wait a second, why would Exxon want to have all these crazy laws and regulations that they have to comply with? Why would they write right. that? Well, they could afford to do it. The idea was to muscle all the small guys out who can't afford to comply with all the new laws and regulations. It's just destroying the what's left of small and medium-sized businesses. Right. And guess Forcing who owns them to close or sell of Exxon? Who's that? Rockefeller. <laughs> At this point, uh, I don't even think you have to ask the question anymore. <laughs> who owns well, they had, a chart, they had a chart in the book when Standard Oil was broken up. Who uh, owns 25% of everything, Jim? <laughs> the Rockefellers. <laughs> I mean, almost when anything. Standard oil you're... was broken up. What was it? Okay. Cruiser. So the, the Standard Oil Company, okay? At the time of the break breakup, Rockefeller owned 25% of the shares and retained the same percentage of shares in all of the new companies. Okay? Now, here's the new companies. Exxon, Mobil, which are now one company, Chevron, Amoco, Marathon, Sohio, and KYSO. KYSO was merged into Chevron. Uh, Amoco and Sohio, which was Standard Oil of Ohio, became BP. So they owned basically 25% of Exxon, Chevron, BP, and Marathon. Mm hmm yeah, and the, and the thing is, did you ever figure out, uh, or did you see when they broke them up? Um, was that that was was that actually coming after them, or that was all done intentionally as some sort of a Machia Machiavellian move? Um, the latter. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't. They were broken up, but they didn't lose the monopoly. 
<laughs> right. No, yeah. I'm just wondering if we went back in time and looked at that move in context, what was the reason they even broke it up? Was there like a public outcry? What was the, or was it? Um, yeah, there just, was some public just outcry. kind of a big controlled opposition move stuff. So like, okay, yeah. So we'll make it look like we break them up, but we're not really going to break them up. I can read it to you out of the book. Hang on. Oh, you have that? Oh, it goes through that in there? It does, yeah. Yeah, read a little of that book. I mean, I'm telling you, the, the, the stuff that you've been sending over from that has been phenomenal. In 1911, the law finally cut up with Rockefeller, resulting in Standard Oil being divided into 34 smaller companies. The most powerful were Standard Oil of New Jersey, uh, which later became Exxon, Standard Oil Company of New York, which became Mobil, uh, which had its headquarters at Rockefeller Center before moving to Houston in 1989. Uh, the damage still turned out to be minimal as Rockefeller was well prepared for this eventuality. And then at the, I just read this. At the time of the breakup, they owned 25% of the shares. Uh, and retain that same percentages of the new companies. In a short period of time, the original value of his stock increased 500% while he re retained control over all of the individual companies. Wow. After the breakup. Yeah, wow, that's cool. Yep, brilliant. Brilliant.